That was great. (laughs) Do you pay taxes? Do you believe in God? Do you use your turn signal in your car? What was the last lie you told? Chocolate or vanilla? Or strawberry? (laughs) Prayer or not? Afterlife or not? So, if we're a community that believes in seeking, then we are a community that values questions. And I would make the case that we even value questions more than we value the answers. And I enjoyed doing some research on questions and that it is a higher function and part of cognitive development in a way that scientists had not considered it. And I have to say, we are swimming in a culture at the moment where the questions are just appalling. (laughs) They're appalling in the sense of... um, So there's that, that notion of there's no bad question. And I would disagree significantly. There's, there are bad questions in, in the sense of the intent. What's your intent in asking that question? Are you in, attempting to entrap someone? I have to say I did my worst parenting when I knew the answers. And I thought it was some great teaching moment, you know. What, so where were you when I knew exactly? Or why is this here? That's not really a question. That's a, um, that's a really sloppy relationship thing, parenting going on. I think questions can also be, uh, and this is what makes for me what's going on in our public life so distressing, um, it can be a way to be tribal. That very simple question of do you pay taxes immediately now has all these political and uh, ramifications. We've all struggled with living here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, or perhaps elsewhere in your life, when someone says, do you believe in Jesus Christ, the only Lord and Savior? That's not a question. It's really not a question. It's a, are you in my camp or not? So if we are truly a community of open-hearted, open-minded seekers, then Part of our task is to always say, are we asking good questions? Are we asking the right questions? Oh, that word right. Let me take that back. (laughs) Are we asking questions that we really want to know? And are we asking in a way that opens up the world rather than shuts it down? And if we are trying to create Unitarian Universalists, I'd say that everything we do for religious education, not just with our children, but with our forum and when we have coffee with each other, that to think about how we ask our questions matters deeply. Um, Oh, and there are other questions. I've forgotten. There's a 
There are those questions that you ask because you know. So there are those questions that show off, that use big words. And So what do you think about the... And I can't even pull one off. <laughs> but it's to let someone know I'm, I, I either know more than you do or I am as smart as you are. So we have to be careful when our questions are freighted with our own egos and they're not really designed to get at the heart of what we're doing here together, which is creating community, working to understand the world and ourselves so that we can become better human beings and in the process also make the world a better place. I say that's our project. So I did ask, I'm sorry there wasn't um, more time for people to turn in questions, but I got some great questions that I think will, will feed us. And I will, if there's time, uh, open the floor to questions. But I'll start with those who emailed in and asked some questions. And I'll read them so that you can hear exactly how they're asked. One is, what do you see hope growing towards in the future? Which is a great question. It's about what is our vision together? And what can we accomplish together? And I'll say that, and the, the question doesn't name what the future is. That's always difficult. So what are we going to do next week? Or where will we be a year from now? And I'll make the pitch for in two years from right now, we'll be in our 50th year. And I think this anniversary is a perfect time for the whole church to look back at this last half century and consider how we started, what part of that DNA is still in us, what part of our history, and I think we have to look with... um, with really open eyes and hearts and go, gee, we weren't doing so well at this moment and here's perhaps why, so that we don't repeat those mistakes. But mostly, this church has done an astonishing job of developing Unitarian Universalist children who've now grown into adults and are out in the world doing amazing things and providing community for those of us sitting here today. And I think that is worth celebrating. But to celebrate it is going to take some effort and planning. So I'm using this as my pitch that, dang, we could have the best 50th year with lots of parties, and we could ask ministers to come back who've been in this pulpit and helped form you all. Um, John Wolfe's sermon back there, we could invite him. He's getting frail. It might be worth talking to him sooner rather than later. Um, and I think part of where we will be in the future has to do with people knowing where we've been in the past and some of the issues the church has wrestled with um, with theological issues with social how, do we, how, do, how are we effective in social justice and charity and how do we educate each other how do we ask questions of each other um, I think inevitably in that question of the future has to do with are we going to grow? And I think the way to grow is to continue. So I've been here, this is my fourth year. 
And I have to say that the timbre and ethos of Hope Church has changed for me, that it's, um, it's a joyful place. It's really, I, I drive up the hill and I'm, I'm always thrilled to be here. Always thrilled to be here. Even when things are a little sticky or there are problems, I have complete faith in this group effort to make decisions. And I continue to be astounded by the wisdom that one person will say one thing and that will spark an idea here and that in the collective process of solving problems and being together and partying. <laughs> so um, so I think, I think growth, I think anticipating growth and thinking ahead to how do we make room at the table? Who's missing? Who's missing when we're sitting in a committee or sitting here? Who is not here? How do we make room for that person or that group of people. I really want to encourage the welcoming congregation to continue to wash over us. What are our blind spots that we are actually not as welcome as we intend to be to gays, lesbians, transgendered? We all may have open open hearts, but there may be things we still aren't seeing. So I encourage that because I think the more we look into our own blind spots and prejudices and talk to each other, the more we will make this place someplace people want to be. Um, I have to say something implicit in that question, and that is what people look for in a minister. Some people want a CEO that says, okay, this is where we're going to be in five years, and I'm not that kind of minister, and I think it's not healthy here at Hope Church. I believe so fully in your capacity to direct where we go because, looking back at the past 50 years, you've directed successfully where we've gone, even when we've fallen into deep holes. People have said, I have a ladder, I'll build it and we'll climb out. So... I think continuing collaboration, more collaboration. And collaboration means you have to continue to communicate what you're doing. Even the simplest committee that's meeting, you have to tell people this is what we're working on because another committee is going to be doing something related to it. The more we communicate, So I can't fully say where we will be in, more, in two, five, ten years, other than if we keep on this track with joy and respect for each other, and if we keep asking, how can we be effective in changing the world? How can our social justice work be more effective? As long as we keep asking those questions, as long as we continue being a congregation of question askers, then I see nothing but a fabulous future. Ah. How can we as individuals and collectively as a church community combat the hate spewing and bullying that has become such so much an accepted part of American and particularly Oklahoman behavior.
Well, I think in that question, that first word, the person asked, we as individuals, and I think that's the place where it starts. I think we have to be consistent and disciplined about looking into our own actions throughout the day and look for all the ways we are ourselves hate-spewing. I've had to resolve, and I haven't succeeded, but I've had to resolve not to name any presidential candidates anymore because it is so easy to talk about the person or persons I don't like. And it makes that person a lightning rod and avoids all of the really underlying critical issues that are facing us as a nation, as a city, as a state. And it's a distraction. And I find it so easy to generalize and mention, uh, can you believe blah, blah did this? And that is actually a form of hate spewing because it's lifting up that person. And um, so I think, I think if we don't start with ourselves, there is absolutely no point in working on it as a community. And I think we have to look at all the ways that are subtle, the way we interact with our elders, the way we interact with our children, the way we generalize. We've talked about this before. Um, there is a man named Marshall Rosenberg who has a system called nonviolent communication. And it, uh, I was first introduced to it by a UU minister who said, this is my spiritual practice. I thought, wow, really? And he's right. What it is, is an effort for every interaction and communication to be clear, to voice what you are. There's, there's kind of a formula. You work on it and work on it so it becomes less formulaic. But the, it, it clarifies your intent in every interaction. And it's about making every moment nonviolent. So if I am clear what I'm feeling and I'm clear in telling you what I'm feeling, not that I always have to go around saying everything I feel, but then the third step is being very clear in what I want from this interaction. And that comes back to those no entrapment, no, no bullying, no, gee, I'm so smart and you're not. So it makes every single communication nonviolent in that it becomes open-hearted and uh, can actually change how, how you go about the world. And it's lovely training because um, it's, it's been around long enough that they've made it available for children and it uses puppets and different, you know, is this your wolf voice or giraffe? It sounds simplistic and it is the hardest thing to do consistently. It is a spiritual practice. Um, I think another part of this hate spewing and bullying is 
piece of always putting ourselves in the path of those who are different. Because it is easy to hate when you don't know. It is easy to hate and make assumptions because you don't know. So I'll go back to that first question about hope's future, and I think part of the work we continue to have to do is open ourselves and bring in those whose experiences are different, and it will change us. And it will change our ability to be hate-spewing. The minute you have a story about someone else, it changes your ability to make that broad generalization. The minute you understand why someone might want to vote this way or why someone might make this choice in their life. (laughs) All right, then then there's smart people who, I'll say smart asses, who ask these kinds of questions. (laughs) Reverend Kathy, is there anything that you've learned from the musical Hamilton? that you'd like to pass on to us. <laughs> okay, who does not know what the musical Hamilton is? All right. Sorry to call you out. Because <laughs> I'm going to make you run, not walk, to hear it. So this fall, I have to give a little backstory. Most of you may know this. Um, The election was already getting to me then, and my daughter Alice was obsessed with the soundtrack to the musical Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda's work on Broadway, which is the hottest ticket in town. And now it's starting to travel, and you can see it in a few other cities. And it is the story of um, Alexander Hamilton, done in rap, which I'm clueless, And she was always saying, Mom, 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 come listen to this. Yeah, 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 yeah. So finally, I made her sit down, and because it's in rap, I had to have the lyrics alongside the music, which she was willing to do. And it is a brilliant retelling, revisioning, recasting of his story. And in brief, Lin-Manuel Miranda has cast it so that... um, Recast in the sense that Alexander Hamilton's written himself out of poverty and obscurity in the Caribbean and comes to the U.S. before we are fully a country and he does what an immigrant can do and rises like the cream to the top. Except he's human. And oh my, does he continue to mess up. And... um, If you thought the sex scandals that are going on now were novel, no, they're not. And he actually wrote a pamphlet to try and clear his name in terms of embezzling and said, well, really all that money was because I had this affair. Um, But the musical is, is brilliant. And I listened to it nonstop, which is a line from it. And now there are all sorts of... I'm not the only person with this obsession, and so there are all tertiary videos out there of what it means to become obsessed and how the steps all kind of look the same. You go, someone says you have to listen, and then someone says... Then you kind of listen and go, oh, that's cool, and then you can't stop listening to it so you can get every word. What it has taught me is 
we are so human. And we continue to be so human. And what is going on now in our country on some level is not extraordinary. So calm down. Politicians and politics have always been messy. And when we let the messiness distract us from the real issues, then we've lost sight of what really matters. And I consider worship, and the worship committee has been talking more and more about this, to be our, um, our time together. It is not entertainment. It is not a show. But at the same time, it has all the elements of a flow. And Lin-Manuel Miranda in Hamilton has brilliantly brought in every single possible human feeling from the loss and death of a child to uh, self-aggrandizement to seriously wanting to change the world and how we, we are all messy and complicated and we try to capture that in our worship together. And I hope from time to time that we make you laugh and cry and swept off your feet by beautiful music and take you out of yourself momentarily so you can go back in and go, oh, now I'm slightly different, which I think is what all performance arts, art in the moment, do. So on some level, this is performance art, and it can be done well. And uh, that's what I've learned from Hamilton. Knowing how your church, our church, excuse me, this person took ownership, knowing how our church is made up of those who are complete non-believers, that was in caps, and those who state they are spiritual or who have some belief in a higher power, how do you manage to direct your sermons in order to keep everyone happy? (laughs) Or do you just not worry about that? Well, I love the notion that I keep everyone happy. (laughs) Uh, That has not been my experience, but that's okay. (laughs) Um, But I think about, uh, I consider these sermons to be a dialogue, because I really do take in what you've said to me or said to each other throughout the week and the weeks and the months into the sermon. So I am always thinking about, hmm, yeah, someone won't, this won't be someone's experience. This will be someone's experience. Um, African Americans have talked about code switching, which is how in their community, when they are amongst other African Americans, people they know well, they can talk one way. And then when they are out in the bigger world, in mixed-race environments or almost exclusively white environments, they talk in another way. And I think they've named something that we all do, that that's not particular to African Americans. We all code switch. You talk in front of your children in one way than you do with your friends. The reason there are men and women's groups is so that We can speak freely in a way that you can't in mixed-gender environments. So um, 
So I consider a little bit what I'm doing when I'm writing a sermon is code switching and, and being aware of that code switching. Code switching, I'm careful with language. Um, but I never... Ooh, that's a strong superlative. I never um, suppress my ideas. I may shape them so that I'm, I'm sure that they're heard or hope they're heard well. Um, but I don't... I can't think of the word. What's it called when you prohibit yourself? I don't prohibit language. But what interests me is, I think, we like to think that those who are non-believers and those who are believers have completely different tasks in the world and views of the world. And the more and more I preach, the more and more I spend time thinking about all this, I realize that just trying to be a good human being is the same no matter your belief system. Some belief systems are much more effective, and as we know, some are incredibly destructive. But I find those who are non-believers, who do not believe in God or a higher power, or who would call themselves staunch humanists, atheists, they're still trying to be thoughtful, effective, loving, compassionate, just as those who are willing to identify as Christian or Jewish, or Buddhist, that it is all the same thing. And that again, it's that, do you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? It's a question that's divisive, rather than getting at really the core of what does it mean that you believe in Jesus, and how does that help you be a better human being? So on some level, I'm preaching to everyone. It doesn't matter what you believe, which is the gift of being Unitarian Universalist because it makes every single leader, whether you're a minister or a lay leader, have to be interfaith in many ways. It's the gift of this uh, tradition that we have to continually sort through, how do I sit next to someone who believes completely differently than I do and have a conversation? Well, you can do it. Uh, And this is the one I've thought about the most and breaks my heart has actually made me cry. What do we do with fear? I have a child who is literally afraid by this election. My child is afraid our family will be torn apart. And this this, uh, question means literally um, taken away and taken back to their home country. Are we aware of how much our children are absorbing this whole ethos of our country at the moment? Parents can't turn on the radio. And it goes back to that, what is nonviolent communication? How much can you say about what's going on? Um, I think we all, not just children, not just parents speaking to children, I think we all have to be very deliberate in detoxing ourselves. I find I am anxious. There is a general um, layer of fear and anxiety that we all bring with us, even up here on the hill on Sunday, that we are swimming in this fear. 
and this vision of the world that it is falling apart. And I think we have to directly address in our own selves, we have to create spiritual practices, they are spiritual practices, to counteract all the fear and apocalyptic visions that are out there. You know, we've talked about gratitude before and making a gratitude list. I think this is the time in our history where we actually have to make lists and go, okay, let me remember what is working well. They're going to fix Sheridan Road. Oh, wait, that's going to be a pain, but they're going to fix Sheridan. We have the social and civic means to hire people and materials to build a new road. That is the world working. That is our government and us working together. It's going to be a pain. Uh, When my children were young, we used to play a game at uh, putting them to bed after we read stories, and we would imagine a tree and let them hang on the tree their worries so that they could hang there through the night and they didn't have to worry about them. And I think it takes that kind of visualization. Whatever works for you or your children or your family, I think we have to make a daily, maybe more than daily, effort to counteract this verbiage that the world isn't working when we turn on our lights. We have a health system. It's not perfect, but nothing is perfect. We have to talk about all the way things are working. You have to make a list of all the people you love and love you. Help your children see all the ways their school works, their friends work. I think we have to do that over and over, daily. And it's not Pollyanna. I don't mean to be Pollyanna. And I am a minister. I Yeah, we're out of time. <laughs> Sorry about that. I... Uh, didn't realize. So if you have more questions, we'll do this again, because I think asking questions is the privilege of our community. May it be so.